This is Care Less, Do More. What's up, friends? Michelle Parker here, your host of Care Less, Do More, kicking off this very special conversation with one of my personal mentors, Jim Zellers. Jay-Z, as I like to call him, is one of my main touring partners during the winter. I find myself gravitating towards people who I can learn from, and Jim is eager to share stories, knowledge, and terrain with anyone who shares his obsession with the mountains. We've spent countless hours on the skin track or sharing a rope at the crag, and I absorb every second of it and listen intently to every word he speaks, mostly because he's just funny and tells great stories, but more importantly, I truly gain so much from being around both him and his wife, Bonnie Zellers, two of my all-time favorite people who have lived a life well-spent creating memories, exploring new places, building a family and a lifestyle, which I admire greatly. Before we dive in, I've got to give some love to our sponsors. Huge shout out to Arcteryx for making the very best gear on the market. They're innovative and think differently than most outdoor companies I've had the pleasure of working with. I figured I should run you all through my layering system while out on a tour or hiking up a mountain, as that's a crucial part of having a comfortable day in the mountains. Starting with the base layer, for me, I love the functionality of merino wool, specifically on my upper body, as that's where I sweat the most. The row merino wool crew neck and bottom are my go-to. This tends to dry well, insulate well, and lasts way longer as it smells less funky. I run the Rush Bib Pant, a Gore-Tex backcountry touring bib, as well as the Rush Jacket. These layers are shells, as I find insulation too warm while I'm out for a tour. On top, I run the Atom Jacket, which is a lightweight, synthetically insulated jacket, does better when wet than a down-insulated jacket, and I've always have an extra cerium down jacket stuffed in my pack for an emergency layer. If someone were to get injured, the first thing that you need to do is keep that person warm. I've been keeping the Squamish hoodie in my pack for blustery days so I can hike with a really thin layer of protection against the elements without overheating. And the majority of the time I like to be the norm and start warm and ditch layers as I warm up, always regulating my heat and trying my best not to overheat or get too cold. Check out Arcteryx gear if you want to have gear that lasts a super long time. Additionally, I'd like to thank Anon Optics and feel so incredibly lucky to get to represent brands that truly make the best gear on the market. Anon's Magnatech technology makes the quickest and most seamless lens changing system ever. I dare you to challenge me, I've raced people, it's the fastest, which pays dividends when you're in blustery, snowy conditions and you gotta get those flat light lenses in. The lenses snap into place using magnets, which also pair well with their magnetic face max system called MFI. It basically creates this seamless coverage from snow, wind, and sun on your face, so you're not exposed to the elements. Anon has this lens tech called Perceive, which I also have to mention, as it's been a bit of a game changer for me in any light, but specifically flat light, as the lens technology enhances contrast for more clarity, and it makes your day on the hill that much better. Our guest today on the show is none other than Jim Zellers. He is a big mountain snowboarding pioneer. He's been here since the beginning of making turns sideways, establishing the sport in Lake Tahoe. He was one of the early explorers of Alaska and then turned to far off peaks leading expeditions around the world. His first snowboard descents include Denali, Nepal's Pumori, New Zealand's Mount Cook, Africa's Mount Kenya, and Yosemite's Half Dome. He's been North Face athlete since 1988 and nowadays is a mentor to so many. Still heavily involved with TNF through his business called High Camp, an internal branding and culture building company, 
Jim has a unique perspective on all things outdoors and is still listed as a North Face athlete, of which I can attest is well-deserved. If there's one person who has shared with me knowledge, a keen eye for far-off lines, and the desire to continue to explore our backyard, it's Jim. His passion runs deep, and in every conversation with him, which mostly occur on the skin track, I learn something new or have a totally different perspective. Welcome to the podcast, Jim. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks for having me. <laughs> it's an honor. Um, I guess we'll just start where it all happened. You were born and raised in Cupertino? Uh, yeah, not born there, but raised there for the most part. Um, yeah, yeah, all the way through 60s and 70s. Yeah. What was it like growing up there? Um, you know, it's interesting, the perspective uh, of the early days, you know, from when I was a kid of mostly everything was orchards and, uh, and watching a boomtown on a large scale and an enormous scale happen in front of you and just think that that's normal around the world, that people are just putting four-lane roads through orchards all over the place. But for us, it was just... We were like, wow, they're just building more places for us to skate, you know? Because um, there was nothing out in the orchards but four-lane brand-new pavement. So it's kind of a cool thing for us. Um, and, uh, and, and skateboarding was a big deal, and so was BMX at the time. Uh, so that's just what we all grew up doing. I love that. How did you get into skateboarding? I mean, that was pretty natural just because it was everywhere, you know? And skateboarding had a big boom in the early 70s. And then all of a sudden, all these little competitions happened. And what was great about the comps is if you just had any board at all and you went to the smallest comp, you could win a set of skate wheels. And usually at the time, it was just two wheels because the front and the back wheels sometimes were different. And if you could get in enough comps, you could outfit your board, you know, because, you know, we don't have any money to buy wheels. That wasn't like that. So, so it was cool. It was fun to do. Right. What year was that, roughly? I mean, mid-70s. Yeah. Yeah. Skate parks opened up where we were. The first skate parks were being built, I want to say, in 70, probably 75 or 76, maybe. Yeah, something like that. And at the same time, like when I went to high school, I was just kind of in all of these team sports. Was that happening around you too and you just decided to go with skateboarding? Oh, it was huge, yeah. No, our family was big into baseball for generations. So I grew up playing baseball as well. And, uh, and that clashed a lot with being on snow, being on riding BMX. It clashed heavily with skating. Uh, there just wasn't a, an agreement between coaches for who were in baseball that thought that skating and snowboarding and at the time skiboarding but uh any of this was cool they were just nope can't do it yeah at a similar similar thing in high school yeah years later for sure the ultimatum from the coach you got to choose between which sport yeah that choosing was i mean it was fairly easy you know and until the end when i finally just quit i was in college and i quit baseball and and i just wanted to rock climb and snowboard and that was it and it didn't go over very well within the family Fair, yeah, fair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so as a youth, were you coming up to Tahoe to go? Yeah. So, you know, from Cupertino to here back then was whatever it was, three and a half to four hours. Um, and we were always in Truckee, based out of there and going to Alpine. And uh, there were so many kids uh, that would come up and other families and stuff. So you can always get a ride up. 
there wasn't much traffic once you left the bay going through SAC was pretty easy. So it was a pretty straight drive. It was easy and you can always jump in someone's car. A pass was I think $90 at Alpine for, for kids if you got together with your brothers and you guys all bought a pass. I think it was some, something crazy like that. So it's pretty affordable, you know, back then. I mean, you could save up a hundred bucks in a summer and be able to buy a pass. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Pass prices were cheap, probably relative though to the times. Uh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But you know, there was also, everything was a double chair. Yeah. You know, there wasn't, there was no quads, nothing high speed. So, you know, it was probably cheaper to operate the ski area as well. At which point you, know. you were on skis. Yeah. I was skiing a lot. I started snowboarding, uh, like my first turns really, I remember vividly on Donner summit and right around Christmas of 1978 actually. And uh, I remember right where I was, right off across from Boreal towards Castle Peak and just hiking up and in just tennis shoes and riding down uh, on a, you know, your ski board, a sim ski board. And, um, and then that next, that winter, we just started snowboarding as much as we could hiking. We so many days we would just quit skiing and hike. It was me and my buddy, uh, Eric Armbruster, who, uh, you know, was also one of the guys we skated with and just one of my best friends growing up. And, um, but at the time Alpine didn't let us snowboard. They let us on the lift. Bernie was the old mountain manager and he's like, all right, well, let's see what you guys can do. And we sucked. <laughs> didn't have edges. We had fins and moon boots and, you know, you'd wipe out and your moon boots would come off and you'd be walking down the hill in your socks looking for your board. It was kind of a weird, funny time. And <laughs> he's like, oh, you guys cannot ride these lifts, but you can go over to Promised Land where all the powder was and you can hike. He goes, you guys can hike there all you want. So that's kind of where we learned is over in Promised Land. What a great name yeah. for a slope. Yeah. And who gave you this first board? Um, I got it for my birthday. Um, they came out, Sims, Tom Sims started from skateboards. He mounted a skateboard on basically a glorified plastic, tiny surfboardish looking thing with some fins. And, um, w that board was, I remember it was like forty nine ninety five at a moped store. And, uh, yeah, I got it for my birthday and, you know, I was like, all right, I'm ready to roll. And, and coming from the skateboarding background, I'm assuming that that way of moving just felt more like what you knew. <sighs> sort of. It feels, sometimes it feels a little opposite. You know, uh, you do so many kick turns on a board, you know, that you're on your back foot, raising your front foot a lot. And on a snowboard, you're putting most of your weight onto your front foot, driving the turn. So having to learn that shift of balance was... Mm -hmm. That's something we just didn't, did, took a while. It wasn't a whole lot of instructors around. <laughs> and were there a lot of you doing this in Promised Land? Uh, just me and Eric. Yeah. And then my little brother. Yeah, Joel. And that was it. Yeah. No, there was, we didn't see any other s snowboarders or anything. Yeah. At the time there were, and uh, which would have been like Bob Klein and Terry Kidwell um, over, and they were sometimes on Mount Rose and then, you know, hiking around Tau City. Okay. Yeah. So there were others, but few. We didn't know. I didn't meet those guys until probably five years later. Mm -hmm. I met them on Mount Rose, you know. How long yeah. did you use that board for? Did I? Yeah. Probably, let's see. 
Yeah, we probably got our first boards out of that probably in like 83, 84-ish, probably 84. Yeah, with Avalanche was making boards there out of South Shore. And I had met Tom Burt, you know, uh, we were both 18. Um, and he hadn't, he skated, but he hadn't really ridden. And so I'm like, I got this board. And then we'd go hike and ride. And that's how I met Terry and Bob and everybody else. Um, Evan Fien was another class. And, every, and the other thing that would center around Lake Tahoe was the mile high ramp, you know. Uh, that Mike Chantry was kind of the godfather of this ramp. And um, for a long time, it was over on Lake Forest, and then they moved it down the street from you right here, Michelle. It was at the end of the road, um, kind of at the end of the cul-de-sac. Okay. Um, jog up. But, uh, so everything was kind of – it was like a, a small, tiny little culture surrounded by mile high and then, and then snowboarding and just hiking. Because no – I mean, some of the areas allowed it, like Boreal and Slide and, and Donner Ski Ranch, but it wasn't, it was almost easier to hike. Right. Because the boards weren't, they didn't have edges at the, at the time, so it was easier to just go right powder. Totally. Yeah. And you're 18 and you moved up from Cupertino? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, and went to school in Reno, and that's where I met Tom. We went to school together. We're the same age, and, and uh, yeah, it was it was, and you know, when you're that young and you're just doing your thing, you don't really realize anything's happening. You're just going about your day to day. This is fun. Let's do this and squirrel and just get, you know, <laughs> go over there and do that. You know, you're not really thinking, you're not planning out your day so much. You're just doing whatever. Right. You have no idea there's a future in what you're doing. Yeah. And yeah. you're going to school at which point? What are you studying? Um, I was a land use planning and geography major. Yeah. Cool. And then in your downtime, obviously spending it in Tahoe doing this. Yeah. So downtime at the time, Tom was, you know, North Shore. And so I spent almost most of my time with Tom. And uh, so we, you know, just any moment we had, we'd go to his parents' place and they had an old, older house uh, on the property. We would just stay there and we'd just do whatever, like, it's just whatever was going on at the time. If it was snow, we'd be on the snow. And if it was dry, we'd be probably rock climbing for the most part because we were super into rock climbing. How'd you get into rock climbing? There was a course at the university, That's which awesome. where I met most of my friends and still super good friends today. Yeah. You met Bonnie. Bonnie was in there, my wife now. Uh, yeah, Tom, Don Welsh, and a lot of pros came out of there. A mm -hmm. lot of professional athletes came out of that program and people that went on to kind of help direct the entire, you know, outdoor industry. It was a small little group, but, you know, everybody's pretty motivated. Yeah, for yeah. sure. So you link up with Tom, who later became one of your main riding partners, mm -hmm. and Bonnie as yep. well, and I'm sure more than just them. But yep. where did that relationship take you? Like fast forward from college, like how did you guys get into exploring on your snowboards? And yeah, I mean it's a great, um, it's a good question. Um, essentially, we were all rock climbing together so much, and then we, at that time, it wasn't a large, I guess you know, group of people in the states that were climbing, but the Euros were, and. So you'd follow the Euros, and so you'd follow everything in the mags, and then there was books written, and we were just so into it and just wanting to be doing what all these people are doing around the world. So just completely fascinated and enthralled with what's going on 
in the high mountains and yet we're at the ski hill hitting jumps and you know riding tombstone pipes and and eventually through competition in snowboarding which was about the only way you could be sponsored and you do the tour and you compete and do all this stuff uh you know i became heavily disenchanted at the worlds in 87 that we got really we were a small group and got kind of you know um what happened at that that time we were the way the worlds were run seemed political we got shifted around behind the scenes with our awards and placements and we protested heavily and by the end of the worlds i said i, I will never compete again and i never have Wow. I was all I wanted to do at that point. I'm like, I didn't really enjoy it that much. I liked the people, but all I really wanted to do was combine climbing and mountains with snowboarding. I just wanted to snowboard climbing routes. Mm -hmm. That was the whole thing. Cause there were so many climbing routes that just seemed doable. Yeah. Most of them were big, long ice climbs and, you know, sort of mountaineering type routes. Especially here locally. Yeah. Locally, the Southern Sierra. Um, we started locally with things here like, that we knew we could climb. Things we climbed in the summer that were low angle slab, which was kind of popular for granite at the time. And so you go up in the winter and you're like, wow, it's the slab formed up with snow. Let's ride it. So that's kind of how it started. Yeah, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah. I feel a lot of similarities with what you're saying. Because I started <laughs> out competing and it was the same thing. Like, I love the people I was with, I love learning new tricks, but like, the aspect of being judged in my sport didn't really sit right with me. Yeah. I just wanted to be teammates with everyone. I didn't want to compete against people. It's a big deal because you're putting yourself out there and to be judged, especially when it's a difference between a race and just a true half-pipe judgment or a we road mogul's judgment, you know? And totally. I was brought up Catholic and I was sort of burned out on being judged constantly. So, you know, the <laughs> yeah. competition was not helping. It. Yeah. 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 Fair. And so you, at this point, like had the development and technology within snowboarding advanced to the extent that you have edges and. You did. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't say it was advanced enough at the point, but we were going out pretty blind. Yeah. We didn't really know what we were getting into, but we were going out and, I mean, it started by just hiking. You're hiking Promised Land. You're hiking Donner Summit. You're just hiking constantly. And you don't, we didn't know anything about avalanches, right. you know. And then by the time we started getting into bigger mountains, we'd learned some stuff. We still hadn't taken a course. I mean, I don't even know if they taught them. That I never asked, but we just got out there. And the avalanche beacons at the time just had an earpiece, and you just listened for the beep to get louder or softer. So... You were pretty much like, let's just avoid avalanches. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but then the good terrain, you wanted to get into avalanche terrain. Right. And you had to do that. And that's when we started figuring out slough management. You know, when you started kicking off sloughs. And the first time it happened, you were like, you're just surprised. You were just a, like, what is going on? Why is all the snow moving around me? So you move away from it and you go, oh. Then you look back, you go, okay, it's moving over there. It was, it, it's kind of a natural thing. It's, it's pretty intuitive, yeah. slough management. Yeah, you instinctively know. you move to the yeah. right or left. Yeah, yeah. well, you hope. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, I mean, we've all gotten flushed because we didn't move, right? It still happens. It still happens. Yeah. But it was, the idea of it is pretty intuitive. You can see it and then you move away from it. It's kind of natural. 
And then talking about like bigger, like slab avalanches, was that occurring? Yeah. I remember once Tom and I were in Italy and it looked like the avalanche, there was a heavy avalanche danger with slab, maybe two to three feet thick slabs. And, uh, I remember telling Tom, I go, Hey, I think this stuff's going to move. So we went down the piste and we, I go, I'm going to traverse out there and I'm going to ride the avalanche, which is what we thought we could do, you know, in the mid eighties. And, uh, I get out there and I'm like, okay. And I just, I just start to go and the whole thing cuts loose, these giant slabs and it's a little lower angle and they're just rolling over these rollers. And I'm, I'm screaming, I'm terrified. And yeah. Tom is snowboarding next to me on the piece going, you're fine. Don't worry. You're, I, quit screaming. Calm down. <laughs> you no know? way. I looked over at him, you know, and he, I could see him look at me going, you're fine. You're, it's, it's no big deal. And the chunks are, you know, the size of just tables and stuff. Yeah. And, and I was fine. Yeah. yeah. I bet yeah. that was a bit of an eye-opening Yeah, I was like, whoa, though. whoa. I didn't. Yeah, it was one of those things where when you don't know anything about avalanches and you wonder about them, you learn quickly. There's more power than you thought. You know? Yeah. Like, whoa, I had no idea. Totally. Because they look super fun from a distance. Right. And at this point in time, there weren't too many people going outside of the boundaries of the ski area, I'm assuming. Like, there's few and far between. Not too many. No, yeah. but, but there were, you know, here we knew there were. There was some, a group up on Donner Summit um, that would constantly go out of bounds. And we just were fascinated. And, you know, within a few years, we were doing that. And then, and then down to West Shore as well. Uh, but everything was like, hike it once, do it, and that's your day. Right. You know, it really was a lot different. Um, and then there were some people you'd see that looked like they knew what they were doing, but mm. you could never catch them. They were in too good a shape and they, they weren't going to let you get close. So, and they might've been on skis. Yeah. They were all, everybody's on skis. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And so there just wasn't a community at all or anything like that. Yeah. At the time. And so you're boot packing or snowshoeing up? Boot packing. Lines? Yeah. Yeah. We tried every method. You know, short skis, telemark skis, switch over, switch boots and boards and buying and just switch everything. You know, we tried everything, snowshoes. And then now snowshoes, that's like, snowshoes are like bear spray. It's like the last resort, you know. <laughs> if nothing else works, all right, bear's charging, break out the bear spray. Or, all right, we just got to wear snowshoes. Right. Yeah, it's kind of like that. So wild. And so then what enticed you and Tom, like you and Tom started going on the road. Yeah. You, did you get sponsored from these competitions? Yeah. Yeah. So we had, at the time our sponsors were like Varney was one of our sponsors and Avalanche Snowboards uh, was the sponsor. Um, and then towards the late eighties, we got in with, uh, with the North Face mm -hmm. and, uh, and then he had some outline sponsors that were a little bit smaller but it wasn't there wasn't a lot of money involved at the time right you know uh i there was some money but not mo mostly it was just travel and then you'd work and then you'd get all your gear paid for and then uh yeah and then i would just i would do like a lot of stunt work and in front of the camera action type modeling or for lack of a better term and that's kind of how i paid for it right yeah and you guys, and both you and Tom get sponsored by North Face at the same yeah, time. Yeah, at the same time, and Bonnie at the mm -hmm. same time. And uh, and then there was a moment where, you know, North Face was in and out with, do they want to be part of snowboarding? And they actually got out of it for 
you know, a couple of weeks. <laughs> Only a couple of <laughs> yeah, weeks. Yeah, <laughs> it was strange. It was during a sales meeting, and they, I got this note, hey, North Face is going to cancel the whole program. I'm like, what? So we drove down and did a slideshow, and they go, okay, we'll keep it. You know, it was just, everything was so small. Good work. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a strange deal. So just nobody knew what to do with the sport. It was so new. Right. Yeah. And I think at the time what's really interesting was everybody looked at snowboarding as it's this new way of thinking. It's a new approach to a sport. The clothes are new. Hairstyles, music, art, everything just pumped out of this. Like, can we have any group that has ever entered into the world as a culture, especially through a sport that was more innovative and liberal mm -hmm. and Everybody was latching onto it. Every ad had to have some sort of snowboard, you know, relation to it, you know. And uh, the irony is, is in the end, the whole entire group seemed to become the most conservative people I've ever met. You know, they don't want to change the boot. They don't want to change the binding. They, you know, they, they just, they, they, they're just, it's a miserable lot, you know, some of them. And I'm like, come on, we were doing this thing. Right. Let's fix our boots now. You know, That's what is it, 40 years later, 30 years later, and we're still these crappy old boots. <laughs> yeah. And bindings mostly. Yeah. 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 A lot of the yeah. same technology that's been around for a long time. Yeah. And we're, we are so hesitant to change because, yeah, yeah, you just can't get anybody to want to change. Right. You know, or make the step. Yeah. We're just so locked into 1991. It's nuts. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, 1990s are coming back right now in fashion. I know you're super in tune with that stuff. Yeah, no, I am <laughs> because people tell me your clothes are back, <laughs> your haircut's back or whatever it is over the course of time. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so you get sponsored by North Face, and you start going on expeditions or just exploring different mountain ranges? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, the very first year, I remember, you know, after North Face, we finally got good gear. It was kind of hard to travel to distant places without good gear. Yeah. So, yeah, one of our first trips, did a lot of stuff here, a lot of stuff in the Wasatch, a little bit in Colorado. And, um, yeah, our first big trip was uh, a month in in the Alaska range, in the Ruth Glacier. Mm -hmm. And we just got dropped off and just started hiking and snowboarding stuff. And it was, it went really good. You know, it's kind of epic. You know, you're, it's more than, we, you know, you had high hopes and of doing bigger things. Then you get in and you're like, wow, this stuff's just big to begin with. You know, yeah. the really big stuff. We need more experience. So we did that and we came home. I remember coming home from Alaska and going straight to the Southern Sierras and spending another 10 days down there up in the Palisades. And uh, just hitting every line we could, you know. And it was just, I mean, at the time, you, you had some hunger. Then when you got a little taste of it, yeah, things like the blinders went up, the focus got deeper. Anybody that would say anything contradictory to what we wanted to do just seemed to be a distraction. Mm -hmm. uh, everything seemed to be like snowboarding through the trees. And the trees are the things you don't want to hit and you avoid them. So anybody that made any mention of what we were doing was weird or strange, just felt like a tree in the woods, just avoid it. Just right. go snowboard past it, you know? <laughs> and it was, I needed to keep blinders on because too many people were saying, either you shouldn't be doing it, it's dangerous, or uh, you're not going to make any money just traveling around, snowboarding in the mountains and doing stories. And there was so much lack of support, mm -hmm. you know, at the time. 
And were you guys coming back from these trips and presenting slideshows and like, what was your media outlet? It was just magazines. Right. There's really not even any film for a while. Not until I think the first film I really did on any of these trips was Mount Cook. And, but I mean, I guess that was 91 or 90, something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they did a, a small TV or an hour long TV show on it. Right. And it aired for a couple of weeks and then it's lost. <laughs> did you and Tom and Bonnie have any like thought process on like what you were creating or what you were shaping at that time? No, that was the thing. That was what was interesting looking back. And I think it happens a lot. You know, I saw it in kiteboarding, you know, I've seen it uh, as well in mountain biking and things where the people that have, I mean, people will have this big just desire to go do that thing. And eventually it turns into this awesome obsession that just takes over your life. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and you're the only one enjoying it. And everybody else is like, what are they doing? And you're just so into it with you and your friends. And I saw it with other sports later on. But again, the other sports didn't see it while it was happening. And we didn't know it snowboarding while it was happening would become something. Right. You know, it was just that we couldn't not do it. Yeah. Just everything was focused on it. Totally. Yeah. In the summertime too, were you guys traveling no. to, yeah. No, we never really snowboarded in the summer. I mean, we weren't weirdos, you know, we just, we still would do summer stuff. Like we were still into rock climbing a lot. Yeah. And that took over everything too in the summer. And I would imagine that that like passion in rock climbing mixed with snowboarding was kind of propelling you and Tom and Bonnie and everyone else into these bigger mountains. <laughs> And creating this vision that's larger, like the more opportunities present themselves, the more you say yes or explore and like open up doors, then like it just becomes this, yeah, this incredible fantasy of like, I can do so much. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, what basically would happen is you get to the top of something that you wanted to ride and then you look out beyond it and you go, oh boy, there's a lot more to ride, you know, <laughs> and then by doing so, you found that you could just travel almost anywhere and ride if you could see it, it had snow, you could probably figure out how to ride it. So we just wanted to go try all the different snowpacks, just the different places around the world. And we just started going. You yeah. Know? Um, and that, again, too, a lot of, a lot of times people are like, the big question be like, how do you just go? Well, we really had to work. And I was a carpenter at the time. I didn't use my major at all. But, uh, but I was a carpenter, so I would you know, save my money and Tom would do the same and we just save up enough. And then you might get a few hundred bucks from your sponsors, you know, or maybe a thousand bucks to go spend a month in South America, which seems like, yeah, you, you, there just wasn't much money in it, mm-hmm. you know? So that was, we would just, we were obsessed and had to keep going and just go to the next thing. Yeah. Yeah. And that first trip to Alaska seems to have sparked multiple trips afterwards. Mm, yeah. Yeah, because we wanted to go do Denali the first trip, you know, and, and our, uh, the, one of the guys we went with who was pretty experienced and taught us a bunch, Chris Noble, um, was a photographer at the time. He's like, whoa, you know, maybe we should start a little slower and just go to the Ruth Glacier and then and check out Denali later. And, and that, so that's what we ended up doing. Tom and I went back to Denali a couple years later. Um, and he was right. It was, it was a big chunk of snow and mountain to, to take on. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was good to have more experience, for sure. Yeah. 
are we talking about you and Tom going back in 1991? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, when we went up there, just the two of us. And, um, you know, didn't, we didn't have that much experience. You know, we'd been climbing around in Alaska and climbing around in the Southern Sierras and other places, but not enough to truly pull off what needed to happen because we didn't summit on that trip. We got to the summit plateau, the big football field, and then turned around onto the, uh, onto the Orient. Mm-hmm. express to, to descend. Yeah. I didn't realize that you guys didn't summit. No. Yeah, we were, um, yeah, we just, we just didn't know anything. Right. You know, we and were just, high altitude. Yeah. Like. All that stuff was kind of creeping up on us and we were just learning as we went. We got uh, to the summit, you know, we went up the Orient and then topped out and we looked over at the summit and we're like, that's like 500 more feet of riding. And totally. We weren't big, big summiteers, you know. We were like so many peaks we didn't summit. You know, there was, it was constantly, we'd get up to a peak and go, well, the good snowboarding's below us, you know. Yeah. And you could see the summit was all wind-waved and crappy. And we're like, you know, I don't know. Our, just, our interest wasn't in the summit as much as it was the line and, and the good snow. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, we didn't, didn't even, didn't bug us. Like, we didn't ever think, we got to go back and summit. I mean, eventually I did, but. Yeah. But it wasn't, it never was like that. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that. I've gotten turned around 300 feet from the summit. I'm like, well, that was pretty fun. Great adventure. Yeah. (laughs) You still get some good riding in. Yeah, Yeah. totally. So in 1991, though, there was not a lot of snowboarders on Denali. And you've told me this story by way of like, yeah, the rangers weren't that down with snowboarders. No, they were really skeptical. Um, they allowed us to go. They gave us a permit, but they were super skeptical, and no one really talked to us. You know, they were we were, and but we were used to being outcasts. You know, we right. were grew up a skater. You know, you you get in a mountain bike, you get in a snowboarding. Everybody just thinks you're a weirdo, and you just get used to it. So it didn't bother us. It's just sort of the norm um, up there, and yeah. And then they were nice when we finished. Nice enough. But, mm-hmm. but still, they weren't like super. Wasn't it was just yeah. Everybody else was like in this club up there. Yeah. You know the climbers and the skiers that might have been up there if there were skiers. I don't even remember. And are you still accessing by way of boot packing? Yeah. Oh, so we had Rondine skis that took us all the way up the glacier, and then at Motorcycle Hill we stashed all that and then boot packed up. Yeah. From there up to 14 and then, and then for the rest of it. Yeah. How many days was your entire expedition there? Not that long. 10 days. Yeah. Maybe 12 at the most. Yeah. Yeah. And then you got there and the Orient was the line that spoke to you the most. Yeah. I just didn't think we, you know, neither one of us, we thought the Messner was something beyond us, Mm. but in the end we learned that it might be a little harder, but a lot of people I don't, you've done both? I've done the Orient. But not the Mesner. Not the Mesner. But it's, I hear from people that have done the Mesner, they're like, yeah, they're both great. Like they almost talk about them equally. Mm-hmm. I just think that the Mesner is a longer line. Mm-hmm. Probably a better plumb line. Probably. Overall. And if you fall, you're not going into the abyss. Like the Orient, if you fall, I feel like. You're- oh, if you fall in the Orient. Yeah. Uh, if you fall in the wrong spot, if you fall up high, you're. It's over. Yeah. Yeah. But the Mesner, you just ragged all into the flats, right? Yeah. There's some exposure too, depending on where you are, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not that we want to go do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. But safer ragdoll. 
Um, (laughs) (laughs) Regardless, so you and Tom, can we talk about that little tidbit on the Orient? Which part? The, the, uh, I don't know if it's off limits. What's that? The person on the Orient. Oh, the dead guy? Yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) We, yeah. So you want to just tell the whole story? Yeah, kind of. I really want to hear it. (laughs) Well, we were acclimatizing and so we went up the Orient and we weren't going to top out. We just wanted to go up a ways and we got up a ways into the Orient and we're like, all right, this seems good. Let's go have something to eat and then turn around. So I, I had the rope. I was, I led, I was more to the right of Tom. So I just led off to the right where there was a little ledge of snow up against a huge rock wall, not huge, but maybe 20 feet high. And I sit down, I'm looking back at the Orient, you know, pulling the rope in for Tom, and then he sits down. And then I turn to my left, and I see, oh, look, there's a dead guy. And I'm, Tom's like, whoa. And there was this guy that was face down. Uh, you could see I kind of, I don't remember what color, pants, but his butt was kind of out, but the pants were still on. He had a brown jacket with a fur hood. And then next to him were two ski poles standing vertically next to him like he just planted them and laid down I'm like whoa so we scooched a little to the right to eat lunch and just kind of hung out with the dead guy you know it's the flattest spot we can get up there and we're like wow that's cool uh and we just you know we were new and we just yeah. figured there's dead people all over the place in these mountains you know just from reading our books about mountaineering and we just didn't know any different and so we went back down, and a few days later we went and climbed it, and didn't really think much about the dead guy. And uh, and then yeah, if I fast forward it to 20 years later, I was up there, and uh, and I'm with a big group uh, of really good skiers and and mountaineers and stuff. And so the rangers loved all of them, and I'm still just a snowboarder, so you're kind of like still a bit outcasted and. But all the skiers and snowboarders were always like, you know, the rangers and everybody always wanted to talk to them. And it was a big deal. And, and uh, I remember standing out in front of the ranger hut or tent at 14. And there was a visiting ranger I knew from Lake Tahoe, Pink, that was a patroller up at, at, uh, at Sugar Bowl. And I'm, you know, we're just staring at the sunset and it's on the Orient and everything. Everybody's just outside. It's a nice evening and the sun's going down. And I just turned to pick. I'm like, do you guys ever like do anything with a dead guy up there? He's like, what dead guy? He goes, I'm just visiting. I don't really know. And this, and this other ranger who's, you know, resident ranger is like, what dead guy? He gets all serious with me. I'm like, the dead guy up, on the, up against the, the rock up there on the Orient. What are you talking about? And I explained the story and he goes, all right. And he, he walks away, you know. And then the next day I get this note. When you get out of the mountains, you got to go see the head ranger, you know. So I'm like, yeah, all right, whatever, you know. So I get out, and, uh, and the head ranger asked me to explain what I saw. And I go, well, you know, when Tom and I were here, this is what we saw. And, and he, goes, uh, <clears throat> he goes, I remember you guys coming. I was the ranger here at that time. And, and I'm like, yeah, I kind of remember you too. You weren't that cool to us. Um, you were totally blowing us off. You didn't even like us being there. And, and uh, he said something to somebody like, I think they're on the dope. You know, we're like, Jesus. This no. Is so whacked, <laughs> you know. And, uh, and he goes, uh, he goes, you saw him then. And you, you know, you know, apparently you say he's up there now. I go, yeah. 
I mean, I didn't go back up to that high point. I did a different route, but Jimmy Chim was with us and he says he's going to take some pictures up higher of, uh, of Ingrid Backstrom and I think Sage went up with them. And so I go, Hey Jimmy, while you wait for those guys to, to hike up and you're taking some shots, like look over at that rock and tell me what you see, you know, get up there. Jimmy came back later and he goes, I just saw some ski poles leaning out at a 45 degree angle. I'm like, oh, so in 20 years, they went from vertical to 45 degrees. Wow. And, uh, but he didn't think much of it either. You know, and the ranger's like, you saw back then, you see it now. Jimmy says there's poles up there. You know, like, why aren't you telling, talking about this? I go, because you were kind of a dick to us. You know, like, why would I? Yeah, you know? and you thought it was normal. Yeah, and I go, I thought it was normal, you know? And he's like, yeah, I guess I wasn't super. You know? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, no, no, nobody was cool to us. No, no, nobody of authority was ever nice to us because um, we were snowboarders. So, uh, so he goes, yeah, from your description, I think this is who you saw. And he throws down this National Geographic magazine. And it was a picture of uh, Naomi Umura, which is one of the most famous Japanese explorers and cold places uh, of all time, you know, and who is in every kid's history book over there. And the picture was taken just before he took up on off onto Denali in winter to do a solo ascent. And then they lost him uh, midwinter. And they've mounted two expeditions since then that cost millions of dollars. And I think there was a handful of people died looking for him. You know, wow. there was one group that got, they said, got flash frozen, like a big cold wave in a wall of air came in and just froze people solid, you know, looking for them one time. Wow. And yeah, it was kind of a nutty deal. And I was like, yeah, all right. I, I don't know. Yeah. What do you say? And you knew yeah. all along. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I suppose so. And yeah. if I remember correctly he had these really long bamboo poles right yeah they're pretty long because he was soloing and so yeah. like part of his theory maybe was that he would walk across if a crevasse gave way he, he would catch himself he would have them sideways okay yeah so there was somebody uh shoot forget his name right now. anyway there was another guy who had done it as well and carried a ladder mm -hmm. an aluminum ladder just one section of it and would carry it sideways over the glacier. So if he fell in, he'd be bridged by the ladder. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was a bit of a solo technique at the time. Yeah. I would probably, if I had your choice, you're like, you got to cross this glacier. Here's a set of bamboo ski poles or a ladder. I'd probably pick the ladder. Ladder <laughs> seems a little bit yeah. more appropriate. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. yeah, coming from Japan, yeah. soloing up the mountain. Yeah. No, he was, yeah. Apparently, you know, the more I read into him, very well liked amazing person huge explorer did some some of the most amazing you know feats around the world yeah solo yeah so wild yeah so that's 1991 and just for the listeners i remember i went up and did denali and we did the orient express and upon coming down i i researched the line and there was no known first ski descent i couldn't find the name but your name and Tom Burt came up for, for snowboard descent and I got so wiped. I was like, <laughs> yes, that's all I care about. That is amazing. Cause Jim has been one of my senseis of the mountains for a really, really long time. So mm. to know that you laid down the first snowboard tracks was pretty special for me. It's <laughs> a good run. And that's back in 91. So then yeah. at, at which point did a, did split boarding become a thing? Um, it was shortly after that, within a couple years, uh, we had seen a board 
in at our friend's house in Germany uh, in the late 80s, and it was split. And I can't remember the exact, I, I don't know if it was a Mistral or it was definitely a windsurf company that had a split. It was interesting, but it was heavy, it was bulky, and it, it didn't make sense at the time. We, we still had better ways of traveling. And then um, as boards came out, kits came out where you could slice your board in half and then put it all together. And then so you could have the board you normally ride. And that's when things started to evolve and you could start cutting your own board. Uh, and that would have been like before I, you know, like then 93 ish, 94 ish in that area, mm-hmm. kind of when that started happening, we started splitting a lot of boards, yeah. you know, cause you had a bunch of boards, you know, from, from riding and being sponsors with, you know, with all the other companies. And so you could just experiment with, with cutting, you know, and that, that got to be kind of fun too. Yeah. I mean, thinking about it now, like you and Tom and whoever else exploring the Southern Sierras by foot without split boards seems like so wild to me like long walks yeah i i think what's different though about today and then and this is part of the splitboard thing was that long ago skiing in the southern sierra was primarily in the springtime mm-hmm. um, there was a good group uh that was local down there that would go you know midwinter you know the john monier and and alan bard and and you know um king and Dave King and some of the others would, would, would always be out in the winter. It was a small crew and they were really knowledgeable and super fit, like way out of our league. So for us and a lot of people, it was, it was pretty much a springtime thing. Mm-hmm. So you'd wake up early, the ground would be frozen and you could cruise a long way just on top of the snow, get to the couloir, the peak, and then you've got whatever, a thousand, two at the most of just maybe booting up some powder. Um, so it was pretty... I, I, in so many ways, if I go springtime, I'm sort of going that way today too. Yeah. It's, Were you guys camping at the base? Yeah. 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 So we'd bring in, you know, bring all of our stuff in and spend multiple days out there, especially in the Palisades. Mm-hmm. That would be the easiest spot. And yeah. then, then we started going out to Incredible Hulk area uh, a little bit too. Yeah. So did the split board like completely revolutionize your approach to the mountains? Yeah, it changed from uh, a lot of springtime trips to all winter long. Mm -hmm. Then it really just opened it up that we can go any day. And then started losing interest in ski areas because we can just get out into the backcountry on a split board any given time. And it was easy traveling and you had the board you wanted. It was super easy. What year did ski areas start like inviting snowboarders? Oh, you know, it was really a slow process through the 80s and into the 90s, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but still, like, it was the, in the mid-90s that Alpine Meadows still was no snowboarding. Right. And they allowed it on Tuesdays. Then it was at night. Then, you know, people just they were experimenting. and uh, So it took a while. But then by, you know, by the end of the 90s, it was pretty much everywhere. Yeah. yeah. At the time, did you harbor any, like ill will towards skiers or like this like riff that kind of was created back um then? not as much towards skiers as a general group as much as i would towards uh resort managers in the forest service yeah uh just because i knew i'm like wait this is i own this land like everybody else does yeah you're telling me i can't snowboard there and they give you some stupid reason you know like 
bunch of lawyers draft up, you know. Well, in the lease it says, well, you're just like, this is so lame. More super fat rich people telling me what I can and can't do. <laughs> yeah. And um, that that would that would constant. So you just end up with zero respect for any ski area manager, mm-hmm. owners, rich people in general. You're just like, fuck, this is lame. Yeah. So. Yeah, and you just were like, well, this is how I've been brought up. Everybody that I come in contact with that has a bunch of money just thinks we're, you know, we don't belong here. They mm-hmm. keep telling you you don't belong. And so after a while, you get you keep getting told you don't belong somewhere. As a skater, as a snowboarder, you just like start to believe it. And once you believe you don't belong there and, and you're a bad person the way they call you for doing something they don't like, you're like, well, if I don't belong here and you tell me I'm bad, may as well just act it out. And, and so, yeah, then the, the resentment towards them would just turn into just, you know, just blatant disrespect, public disrespect. And that's where a lot of the rift came from, mm-hmm. you know, and in skateboarding, too, when they closed all the skate parks and then everybody everywhere can't skateboard on our sidewalk, can't skateboard in our parking garage. You know, everybody just, you're just like, why? You just think you're doing the most wholesome, fun thing in the world and people say you can't do it. Right. So you're just like, yeah, you guys are lame. Yeah. Yeah. So that we're still like early '90s at this point. Yeah. And when did you and Tom start going and and looking at like Nepal's Pumori or Mount Cook in New Zealand? I know there's some. Oh epic well, stories. those are early still. I mean, Mount Cook was '90 or '91, probably '91. Pumori was '95-ish. Yeah, yeah. And then South America, all through the '90s. Yeah, mm-hmm. we just. You know, we were here, and this is a great training ground. You can get to really good terrain and do some fun, steep stuff. But uh, uh, we we just wanted to see different peaks and different mountains. And just, you know, you'd see the lines in the pictures. You're like, why is that sitting without tracks? Yeah. You know? Um, and there was a big differentiation with doing a first descent and being the first person to climb something. like. You know, when somebody was the first person to climb some big peak in the Himalaya or South America, you know, they, you know, that's a big claim, you know, especially the more famous ones. And then by the time they've climbed it and you know you can climb it, descending it just became more of a puzzle. So now we're just trying to figure out, like, the world just became this mountain just display of puzzles. And you're like, how do you figure them out? A lot of them are really hard and I just couldn't participate. <laughs> but mm-hmm. the ones that I'm like, I could see like how to figure it out, that, that just became way more fun, mm-hmm. way more fun. So then that's just what we were doing. You'd look at a picture in Bolivia and go, all right, I think I, I see the line. Let's go down there and see if it works. You know, so that's just kind of what we did. Yeah. Is yeah. Bonnie with you at this point? Like going on, on these adventures? Some of them, but on those really big high altitude ones, she was, she was, not with us on a lot of those yeah she was going and she ended up in her um career in snowboarding you know working more with rosignol and some other sponsors and then they would be sending her on trips and she was filming a bit and doing other things with snowboarding and then we'd meet up to go do other trips you know just go down the southern sierras and things like that but it kind of seems like you and Tom, and I keep referencing you and Tom, yeah. but um, we're doing this thing in snowboarding that wasn't widely accepted within snowboarding even. It wasn't really 
Not that it wasn't accepted, but it wasn't. It's was just really, uh, understood. It was sort of a fringe. You yeah, were like, we were already in a fringe sport, and we were yeah. doing a fringe thing, and so you were just looked at as like, you guys are over there, you know. And everybody's like super in snowboarding. Everybody's pretty nice to each other for totally. the most part. There wasn't any rift inside there. Just like, oh, that's a weird thing you guys do. You know, you'd get funny. Th- people would make fun of you and stuff. I remember, you know, like Craig Kelly going, I don't know if I want to do that extreme stuff, you know. And like then he ends up being like sort of the just the dad of going out into the backcountry, you know, with with all the whole Burton revolution of uh of doing their splitboard and their whole scene you know yeah he got really into it. others i remember being in alaska once when you know mike Rankwood came up to me he's like hey zellers you got like a like a shovel i can put in my pack i'm going out in the helicopter today and I, actually i just need the blade i just need a prop just just to make it look like i know what i'm doing you know but no one would be wearing a beacon you know yeah. he just wanted props so we get you know people would sort of joke about it but no one really got it yeah, you know, they didn't. There wasn't a lot of. There was a few others doing it, you know, um, but not not a lot. I like the thought of like your sport started by way of hiking on your own two feet and going and finding at whatever you called it, Pleasure Mountain. Uh, pa- uh, Promised Land. Promised Land. Yes. <laughs> you grew up here. It's just right over there. <laughs> no, <laughs> not quite a staple. I don't even know where Promised Land is. I gotta go hike it and board down it. Um, but your sport developed in that way for you and Tom and all these other people at the forefront of it. And then it kind of, for you, it just always was hiking up mountains. And I wonder if like the newer age people who didn't necessarily have to do that, didn't have that like base or that foundation of walking up mountains to kind of influence their path, I guess. Yeah, maybe not. Um, but what I do notice about snowboarding in general is it's a seems natural for people to just walk their board up a hill and ride down um and, and you'll see it at the skier it might they might just be walking the half pipe but they also just might be you you're constantly taking your board off if you're at a mountain that has any flat zones and then you'll see somebody like have to walk the flat for 100 feet and go well i may as well just keep walking up this hill and get that little powder shot it just seems like it's something that happens naturally on a board because it just you take it off it's under your arm you walk yeah you know and as opposed to like skis which you you got two of those and two poles and it, it just seems more cumbersome so it just seems like a natural thing to do in a <laughs> skis board. and poles are more cumbersome <laughs> <laughs> no no i i don't this. know i hear it's fun <laughs> <laughs> you used to do it though i for for a time i did no yeah. i still it's yeah occasionally get on it pair of skis yeah i'd like to receive that phone call next time <laughs> i used to switch with sage because he's goofy foot oh, and no we have the same foot so yeah. we'd be on a trip and somewhere and we'd just switch out on the top of the hill and that's awesome yeah that's fun so bonnie's kind of almost more in the mainstream scene with her sponsors shooting videos like yeah and then hiking a bunch like yeah. she was still known for hiking and then she would always we'd all be together in alaska every year yeah. And then her and Tom would go and do stuff in Alaska that I wasn't on as well. I'd mm-hmm. be doing, I remember like the first year I went to Juneau, I just went on my own to, with friends that lived there to go check it out and to figure out Juneau. And they stayed in Valdez and did the comps and they were judges at the time and mm-hmm. they were all over the place in Valdez and they were, yeah, they got a lot of fun times in, in Alaska. 
That's so cool. Yeah. I keep referencing Bonnie and we kind of skipped over it, but Bonnie's Jim's wife and she is someone who the first time I went out with her, I was like, oh my gosh, I have so much to look forward to because she still charges up like last year we had four days in a row and on our fourth day of hiking, we hiked like at least 4,000 vert. (laughs) And how old is Bonnie? (laughs) <laughs> Does she want me to tell her? You don't have to tell her. No, we don't, we don't have to tell anyone. Um, but regardless, it like super inspired me to get older and to like continue to do these lifelong passions. Yeah. And I think that's something too, like when, you know, to switch gears a bit, like raising kids, um, we have two boys, Dylan and Ryan in, in their 20s. And, you know, we got brought up with a little bit of team sports. You, you said yourself as well, little team sports, but it was just so discouraging. We're like, well, we know they're going to quit them when they're 20. Mm-hmm. Like 90% of everybody that does team sports quits them by the time they're 18, really. So what's the point? Why don't we teach them all these fun things they can do when they're 60 and 70 still? Mm-hmm. And just like, why are we investing time in something they're going to quit? You know, there's no... And team sports doesn't really teach you to be much of a team player. Because in the end, what I learned in baseball is... By the time you get good and you're you're a little older, you're just out for yourself and to get drafted by a bigger, you know, bigger team. Right. And so let's just let them go skiing and skateboarding and mountain biking and climbing and kayaking and stuff they'll just do their whole lives. Yeah. And they do that now. Totally. You know? So so yeah, I thought it was better for us, you know, in the end. Like we still do it. I don't see it quitting. I don't no. see it going away. No. Yeah. Yeah. I think about that. Well, okay, going back to the team sports comment, because my dad was like, he was my coach in all these team sports, and I played center mid on soccer. So he was like, you got to be the assister. You have to pass the ball. So I did learn that. Like, give to other share. people. Yeah, to share, to pass it off. And that was my, I felt like my like good addition to the team was like, <laughs> I'm going to get the ball where it needs to be, and I'm going to pass it off, and the striker is going to finish this job. But I think that I was maybe an oddball on my team in that sense, because you're right. It's like pretty independent. You're on a team, but like I remember a lot of people weren't passing the ball. Right. No, you want to shine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. And score the goal. That's yeah. Who, yeah. You score the goal. You want to, you know, bait your wide receiver so you can intercept it. You want to. There's all this stuff. You know, you you want to you want to play that game. But I love that perception of teaching your kids these lifelong passionate things to do in the outdoors. Whereas like nowadays with all of these free ride competitions, I'm seeing a lot of young kids getting into the competitive aspect of riding big lines at high speeds, taking huge airs in less than marginal conditions. And honestly, like maybe I'm just getting a little bit older, but I'm like, whoa, that scares me. Like, are we skipping the step of teaching them like what it feels like to hike up a mountain with your friends and to have a little picnic and to enjoy the outdoors and like and really enjoy every single turn like those are the things that like right now are bringing me the most joy it's not hitting these big cliffs and it's certainly not getting injured it's like these things hiking up mountains with you and bonnie on the skin track in tahoe that brings me so much joy i mean well it does me too when we're out i totally agree with you it's great when we're all out together and and it's it it is an awesome thing. I I do think that these kids in the free ride world tour and 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 other aspects uh, of of the sports, even if it might be urban, they really do love what they're doing every day. For sure. I'm not sure they're exactly missing out because I do think they enjoy being out there. What I think is harder, especially on some of these comp 
deals. Uh, and I would, I would say more in the free ride realtor because uh, the half pipe can be pretty, pretty similar throughout the year, the way that it's constructed. Um, temperatures can be semi-regulated with, with ice or, or with, with, with salts and whatever they treat the half pipe with. And rails can be the same rail. They might switch them out, but it's pretty similar. But when you look at Free Ride Realtor and you're saying, okay, you got to perform at this super high level on this day at this time, and you need to take all your training and make it work at this time. And you're like, and at the very high end, when you leave competition, at the very, very high end of free soloing rock, free solo high alpine routes, um, big ski snowboard descents, um, sometimes going into, you know, surfers going into big waves. Um, you can make that decision based on how does your body feel that day? How does the day feel? How, where's your mind at? And then make that call. Did everything line up? And if it doesn't, you can walk away. And if everything lines up, you drop in. Everybody will drop in when it all lines up and everything feels right. And to force something that you should wait for the right moment to force it into marginal conditions on a specific day, um, I think it's a it's a big stretch for for these kids. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So I think they really enjoy competition, and I think they enjoy their turns. But I think it's a it's a high level of competing. Totally. Yeah. When it's just like, all right, be good now. Yeah. Drop in and don't wipe out. You're like, wow, that's, yeah, okay. That's a lot of pressure. Yeah, it is. Yeah. 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 And I think that's also the evolution of the athlete too is kind of like, I know for me, there was a point in my career where I was super ego driven. Like I wanted to win best female performance and like that was my goal every single year. And now I'm like, yeah. I don't really have to win that anymore. I just want to go make turns and have a really good time. Right, and I right. still want to progress the sport. But I think I've come back around to that thought of longevity. It's probably when you have six knee surgeries, start thinking about <laughs> longevity a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, I bet you do. Yeah. Taking a break in this episode to talk about peak skis and additional supporters of Care Less Do More. Bodie Miller wasn't just the winningest male ski racer in North American history. He was a ski designer who contributed to the invention of modern side cut and a slew of other innovations that skiers now benefit from. Bodie won a lot because, in large part, he understands skis and ski design. Peak exists to drive innovation and think carefully about gear. Bodie also understands service. Imagine the attention an Olympian gets from his service crew and support staff. As a direct-to-consumer company, Peak is committed to knowing and serving our customers through direct interaction. There are no middlemen. If you call Peak, they answer the phone and talk about skiing. Peak wants you to ski better and have more fun. Today, on the New Year's Day, I made my first turns on the 104 SC, which I thoroughly enjoyed while here in Utah after a pretty decent storm. I found the SC line to be lighter weight and more playful as a result. Get yourself some Peak skis. Huge thank you and shout out to Palisades Tahoe for supporting the podcast. Now you get two mountains, now united. The base to base gondola is now open for shredding. One iconic destination, two distinctly different mountains now connected by the base to base gondola. Uniting these legends is the realization of a dream more than 70 years in the making. It means you no longer have to choose between the high octane energy of, and legacy of Palisades, which is my favorite resort in the entire world, or the laid back adventurous vibe at Alpine. Explore the 44 lifts, eight mountain peaks, and 6,000 acres of legendary terrain set in Lake Tahoe at North America's largest icon pass destination. 
This winter, get ready to explore all 6,000 acres of legendary terrain uninterrupted. Learn more at palisadestahoe.com. So we skipped over I really want to hear the story about Mount Cook because I think that one's pretty fascinating. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that one was was different for me because I basically just got invited. And they said, hey, uh, it was a group that was filming it for forget what the name of the show was like American sportsman or something. And they said, we're, we want to film these two hang gliders hang gliding off the summit of Mount cook. And, uh, one was a guy from the U S who did the first, you know, backflip on a hang glider. Another was a woman who did the first crossing of the English channel in a hang glider. And they're like, yeah, these guys are like the best in the world. We want to bring them up there and, and then we'll hang glide off the summit. I'm like, wow, that's, that's crazy what do you need with us or with me? And they go, well, we need a snowboarder and a skier. We have this Olympic skier, uh, Bruce Grant, and we want you to partner with him. And then the two of you will go along your path and then they'll go along their path with the hang gliders and we'll all try to make this big expedition happen. So a lot of balls in the air and and I got along super good. Bruce and I hit it off really well. And uh, we visited the first guy that descended it. I forget his name now, uh, uh, from New Zealand, a native uh, Maori guy, uh, super cool guy, gave us a lot of good beta. He did it on a rope, and um, but a solid skier, and he was like, yeah, I think it, you guys should be fine, you know? He had done it several years earlier. And so he kind of pumped us up, and, and it took us a while. The weather's pretty bad there, and eventually... Um, we were we tried climbing we got shut down so many times and then when the day was perfect we actually got a bit of a an assist we got a heli bump a little ways up and then climbed the rest and then uh, and then descended but it's a complicated mountain um, in the sense that you can't go directly off the summit there's no like true line right off the summit so we had to like go off the east face or the west face no the east face to start for just a few turns, like four or five turns. Take a hard left, get into this big face that terminates into a rock rock wall and a cliff, and then grab this tiny steep traverse for about three or 400 feet, then get across to a shelf, and then you got a 3,000 foot, you know, big wall into crevasses and ice fields and stuff. And, and uh, it was it was complicated and it was, you know, we were kind of, you know, you get all your focus and you're just, it was kind of cool. Like it was, it was enjoyable, a little bit scary at times, but for the most part, just, just everything lined up. You know, it was one of those things where I didn't, it was the right day and the mm-hmm. conditions were right and it went great, you know? And, and, uh, and I remember like, you know, finishing the whole run and Bruce and I were kind of swapping a little bit. He was more in the lead. He was such a good skier. And, and uh, and we finished out on the glacier and, and we cruise across the glacier and we get onto some pretty easy terrain and this guide skis up to us that was kind of spotting and working with the uh, hang gliders who never summited, it was too windy for them. Um, and he skis up to us, you know, and he's just high five and Bruce, you know, no, two Kiwis, so much pride there. and. He just looks over at me as a snowboarder in the early <laughs> 90s and an American. He just looks over, he goes, yeah, not bad for a yank, and just walks away, you know? <laughs> I'm like, wow, that was a pretty good compliment. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know um and then a three days later uh something happened on on mount cook and the whole top fell off so 80 feet of the mountain the the top ice cap just collapsed and then avalanched all the way down this big 10,000 foot avalanche and uh yeah so the whole the route on top was all erased wow and uh there was jokes in the newspaper down there about snowboarders ruining the snow and (laughs) of course (laughs) you know and uh yeah and then uh it was just like a really great comfortable like uh sat sat well with both bruce and i as a descent like just it was just what we wanted to do you know it was sort of a perfect thing and then in the next year yeah bruce was on k2 and the wind came up and blew him off and nobody's seen him since damn so super sad he was Mm -hmm. a hell of an athlete awesome guy um big loss like who knows where he would have taken all this mountaineering stuff mm-hmm. uh, and skiing. Yeah, yeah, with the lifetime spent in the mountains, I'm sure you've had your fair share of tragedy and loss. Yeah, yeah, a lot of a lot of that. Yeah, early on, it was this whole thing. You convince yourself you're doing a calculated risk, and I wasn't really good at math, so calculations were constantly off. But we just got it was just luck, really. There's a lot of close calls. Um, a lot of things where it felt like, oh, I think this is it, you know, as you're getting flushed or something's happening. And you just got lucky, and I have no real tricks to share about how to be lucky. Um, I just know that my friends that passed were just, they just weren't fortunate for that day, but they were, most of them, way better athletes than I ever was, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, uh, I guess the... I mean, one other thing that I would say I, I would learn about them is the first couple of people that passed, I'd be like, yep, they were on that ridge at that time. I would Monday morning this thing and try to explain why. And then, you know, I, that, that quickly ended. <clears throat> There's no way to do that. Mm-hmm. Just you, you have no idea what goes into why somebody passes um, on a ski or climbing accident. You just, you just, you can't even guess it. You just got to say it happened and hopefully you spent some great time with them before they passed and just be satisfied and and find a place for them mm-hmm. yeah 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 i agree kind of got lost in there <laughs> thinking about it all <laughs> well it is it is sad and it tears us apart you know and there's yeah but there's some good memories too that you know sometimes they'll, they'll pop up and I'll, i can laugh for you sure. Know, um, and that usually that happens more the more distant I get from somebody passing that I, I will laugh, mm-hmm. you know, but but there's always somebody that seems to pass where I, you know, split that day with a couple of tears as well. Oh, and yeah. it's like, oh, man. Yeah. 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 Somebody died more recently. Um, yeah. But I do like the I mean, everybody I've met and they're just it seems like it's some of the best people that get taken And you're like, is someone building up some super, super, I don't know, rock band up in some weird place? And they just keep plucking people away to, you know, our best of the best. Yeah, these good, incredibly talented individuals who are just salt of the earth. Why do they get plucked? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I know... At one point after losing Timmy, I had like a solid few years where I was sure that I was next. 
and it was this weird thing that plagued me whenever I got in an airplane I'd be like damn it it's gonna happen like and it kind of just haunted me every time I was on a climb I'd look down and I'd be like well it's probably gonna happen right now and it was the weirdest thing and I'm so glad that that has passed but I don't right. know it was something that, that it's good it passes many years yeah <laughs> totally with time it went it went by but yeah unfortunately that's just something that we deal with playing on the line yeah and it's just it's probably highlighted more i'm sure we could grow up in some part of the country where people die in car wrecks more often than not or whatever i don't know you right know, but in just, our culture in our little group this little world we just yeah and those memories stick with you like i know we're both reading the art of Shalpinism by mm -hmm. jeremy jones and there's a whole page in there that's talks about kt22 and the lives that have been lost on that chairlift or at palisades oh i haven't gotten to that chapter. you haven't gone to it yet yeah and yeah. how when jerry even talks about it he's like these are the memories that i have and they far outweigh the fun times like those are really pivotal moments pivotal moments in our lives when you remember these accidents happening yeah. and where exactly they occurred and but at the same time, like we all have this deeply instilled passion and joy for what we're doing. And yeah. Yeah. I don't know where I'm going with that. Well, I, yeah, I guess where you're, what you're really asking is how can we keep going when we know the risk um, is there and it's a reality and it's hit the reality hits every, almost every year it'll hit. Why do we keep going? You know? And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I think it's just maybe a. It just seems so fun when it is fun mm -hmm. that maybe overtakes the bad parts, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and it is an obsession. Yeah, and I would say when, you know, whenever I hear, even in your intro, like, oh, yeah, this passion for snowboarding, I'm like, well, I mean, yeah, passion's good because you can, you can go with a passion. But when it turns into an obsession, Man, a lot of things go by the wayside. Totally. And and we all hang out obsessed knowing that, you know, like right now, you know, like it's, I, I love this part. You know, when you're injured, you know, your friends kind of stop by. But for the most part, you're not going to see most people until you're back on the snow or doing your thing. You know, you just, it's sort of an accepted like, oh, you you can't go out with us? All right. Let us know when you can. Right. Right. <laughs> and, and I... I accept that, you know, mm -hmm. I accept being not with the group for a while, just going, okay, I'll be back out there, mm -hmm. you know, where I think in other cultures are like, you know, people get their friends, bring them soup and cookies every day. <laughs> I don't know, like when they're rehabbing a, an injury uh, yeah. somewhere else, but yeah. everywhere around, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't even know where I'm going with that one, but I brought you collagen because I need you to did, back on you did, skin track. You did. And I started the collagen. Yeah. <laughs> did you though? Yes, I did. On the record. He did. On the record. All right. Started it. Sick. Yeah. <laughs> I had to get rid of some of the other stuff first. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you're so true. I remember getting hurt and sitting in my room and being like, I wonder if I'm going to see my friends. And occasionally they'd stop by. Yeah, occasionally. Yeah. yeah. But it's, it's like, okay, it's fine. You know? Yeah. It's good. I get it. <laughs> How many injuries have you had? Not a ton. Um, speaking of KT, I mean, I had a shattered pelvis. I did on KT once, mm. following Sean Farmer. It didn't work out so good. Uh, destroyed both shoulders, both ankles, 
all soft tissue. Each took about a year to come back fully. Broken hands and arms and things like that. And then the latest was just getting a new hip. But not not as much as, not like you've gone through. Those are longer recoveries. Yeah, knee surgeries are, but you sound like you've been through the ringer, though. A little bit, but not, I, I've never had the rehab that, when people are like, it's nine months before you're going to really ski or snowboard. I'm right, like, or longer. I, or longer, and I'm like, I don't even know how to do that. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I, don't, I don't have the, the bandwidth for that, I don't think. <laughs> so it's, yeah, so it's great to see, like, to know that it's possible. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Jim was just telling me a story before we jumped online here and about going to the gym and using the, uh, the bike for the very first time today. And yes. how he had to ask the person at the front desk how the bike worked and where it was located. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I only go into the climbing part of the gym. I, I've never been upstairs or to the end of the other. I haven't even been to the bouldering room it's a great before. Scene. And then, and then he told me how to use it, and he was right. Pretty straightforward. Yeah, pretty straightforward. <laughs> <laughs> Sit down and start pedaling. Yeah. And the screen will pop on, so you're fine. You know. With he that, was nice though. He he didn't look at me like I was a total idiot, but you like could you're tell. An alien? Yeah. Like he could you could tell. He was like, really, dude. <laughs> I love that. I love that story. Um, with every injury that I've had, I've always looked back and in retrospect, like I never regret those injuries, and I always feel like I've gained something from them. Do you have that similar feeling or not at all? Yeah, no, completely. And I, I it wasn't put into perspective until this this last one getting you know getting the old femur cut off and getting a new one put on. Uh, where Jeremy Jones said, um, oh, yeah, don't waste a good injury, which means that during your rehab from an injury, there's a lot of opportunity. So, and it's opportunity you wouldn't normally have because, you, you, you know, if you're going to be out playing every day, you're probably not going to take the time to do the things that, that would probably balance you out, which could be reading, it could be writing, it could be, I've been picking away on the guitar way more learning new things and and I I think that's what it is like it's it's more opportunity than it is like this setback Mm -hmm. so yeah yep love that perception yeah yep I went back to college picked up the ukulele remodeled (laughs) my house so many things exactly never waste to get an injury don't do that (laughs) yeah but it is all about perception I think I think I get that question all the time like what do you do like I could see it being so easy to fall into this negative mindset and get frustrated about it and while that happens and that's totally okay that that happens I think like yeah find other things that you're passionate about and take advantage but this is also saying with the caveat that we have the time to do so as well that's a really good point um uh when you're injured and you're not planning on it that can be a real problem um this when it's elective surgery the current thing I've got, um, I could plan for it, plan for the time off. But you're right. If you really need to get back to work and you're injured, it's pretty hard to say you're going to take advantage of your injury when you don't have a way to pay for it. You yeah. know? So, but, you know, if you're going to play really hard, it's like driving an old car. You better have some reserves for fixing that thing. <laughs> yeah. You better have another car while the other one's in the shop because... Mm-hmm. You just can't depend on an old car. When your body gets a little beat up, better have some reserves. It's just how it is, you know. Do you have any tips for longevity? You know, uh, I don't, but... Jim, come on. This is what this I'm asking was, This was asked of 
Kevin Bacon recently, you know, he goes, somebody asked him, I think it was uh, Jason Bateman in one of his podcasts says, you've been around forever acting in so many movies. Like what's your, what's the secret to longevity? And Kevin Bacon says, he says, uh, there's no secret to longevity. Longevity is the secret. Just stay in there and do your thing and you'll be in there forever. And that's longevity. Great point. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, so all these little tricks and stuff. I loved what Kevin said. Yeah. Just keep doing what you're doing and then you'll be there a long time. And everyone thinks you've been there and it's called longevity. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Sounds good. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. I guess I'm just kind of readjusting my approach to the mountains in recent times because I really don't want to get hurt again. And right. I'm like, longevity is key. And so I'm like kind of restructuring my entire approach, which is, which is fun. Well, it seems like a lot of, if we're going to stay in snow and ski and snowboarders, a lot of them will eventually spend more time in the backcountry. Yeah. You know, and it might be when they hit their thirties, maybe when they hit their forties and they're like, I'm just, you know, and then they just get into the backcountry and that's all they're doing. I don't often meet skiers and snowboarders in their 30s and 40s who've been in the backcountry a bunch going, you know, I'm going to get into rails and half pipe more. Scott I think Gaffney. I'm going to, I think, yeah, <laughs> Scott Gaffney, maybe. Yeah, I'm going to blow up all the backcountry days and all my reserves. I'm just going to go hike the pipe. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. So maybe longevity has something to do with uh, being in the backcountry. Well, you're just keeping your body in motion and you're doing something that gives you good exercise and, and community. Yeah. 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 Because typically you will have a, some partners in the backcountry. Hopefully. Yeah. yeah. In, in a lot of times I'm still a huge proponent of going solo in the backcountry as much as I can. And I think that I, I think if you're going to be really into riding in the backcountry, you need, you need a lot of days, uh, solo every year mm -hmm. and you need to spread them out throughout the year but you need them because it allows you to not be distracted and make decisions based on what you're feeling smelling hearing and and you know everything in the snowpack and what the trees are doing and they all tell you something if you're talking in the skin track for hours you're not always seeing all those signs so you, it's really good to go solo i think that it's really good to go solo as well, but I think that it takes a certain level of experience to dive into that aspect. You do have to pick going your, solo. your routes, yeah. Yeah, and understanding the snowpack and just going out on lower danger days. Yeah, I mean, there's still- To is, familiar places. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I agree, I remember uh, being out in Silverton of all places and on Red Mountain Pass and not having too many partners and so I would go with partners to a zone. I would know that it was hammered and then I'd go solo. And it was like mm -hmm. this huge check yourself because my decision-making when I was solo was so much more conservative than it I was is, with yeah. other people. And it was really interesting to kind of like, yeah, bring awareness to that. Right, but you build it up. I mean, you might go back to red and, and not be as conservative because you can read the snow better because you've done more solo days. Right. And you can't really get that much better without going solo. Mm -hmm. You almost have to go solo and know what those limits are when there's no distractions and no help. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, because you're completely clear-minded, but you have no out. Totally. You are you know? your rescue. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, okay, I gotta hear about Half Dome. Mm. Are you the one and only Descent, or? I. You know, I don't truly 
hear every dissent, um, but I do get people will call. Uh, some people call and ask questions before they go, or they you hear a little bit. So I'm sure somebody's done it and no one's heard about it, or maybe you've heard about it. And I don't know. I don't know. But um, yeah, I mean, I would say like I didn't know if anybody had done it before I did it. Um, I before I decided this seems like a good idea. I, we had climbed. I'd climbed Half Dome on a few different routes, and I remember one time coming off with Bonnie, we had just done Snake Dyke, and I think we went and did it again, and the second time I went, I brought an inclinometer, which is just a card with a meter, with a, a, a degree meter on it, like how steep is it? And then I hiked down the cables going, oh wow, and the steepest I got was 47 degrees. I go, I can snowboard. If this thing gets snow, I can ride 47. You know, I mean, most, peep and that's the steepest part and i'm like you know most people can ride 47 there's so many ski areas that have that steep pitch um your consequences of, of course are a lot bigger on, on the on the cable route um it gets pretty skinny at, at points and uh and depending on the snow you know what you're gonna get but uh you know i started in kind of in the early 90s thinking about it and doing that and then I knew I wanted to, I knew I, it was doable again, going back to rock climbing routes and climbing routes in general, how, how to snowboard it. And I remember being in Truckee one day and a friend of mine was doing his, getting his pilot's license, uh, Jerry Dugan, who had fall line films. And I just saw him in town. He goes, Hey, I'm doing my mountain flight training today. I can take somebody if you want to go. And I was in town. I go, I'll meet you at the airport. So we went to the airport. I got up in the air and they had to fly in the mountains. I go, you guys should fly over half to them and, and just see, you know, over Yosemite. Like, oh, that would be great, you know? So I've definitely got my camera with me and I'm flying over and I'm taking pictures and there's, there's a little bit of snow on it, it's midwinter. I'm like, all right, not enough snow to snowboard, okay. So then the next year I went in and, and, and took a look at it and there wasn't enough snow. Um, and I started in on that project going, all right, I've looked at it one year, enough snow. I went in the next year, not enough snow, but the snow's really good below. Uh, Half Dome depends a lot on a very specific weather pattern, which I didn't know at the time. And uh, I partnered up with Richard Leversey. He and I were old friends, and he's an old Sierra climber. Um, and he loved taking photos. And I go, well, why don't, he goes, I'll take photos. Let's do this thing. And he was, since he was such a old school climber, he was really good at keeping secrets. So it was just he and I that knew, and, and Bonnie. And the point of that was, if I had told somebody or let it be known, hey, this is what I'm thinking about doing, or where are you going this week? How come you guys left? Or where were you the last couple of days? Listening to people comment on is Half Dome doable or not seemed like a distraction, and I, I just couldn't, I couldn't allow comments to come in on Half Dome. So, so I kept it just to myself and Richard. And... Uh, and I didn't know what it took, so it just was more of experimenting. So I'd hike in every year, and we'd go and camp, and we'd hike up to the base, and you'd get there, and we're like, ah, not enough snow again. And the next year, I, I remember calling the rangers in Tuolumne, and I said, hey, I'm gonna ski across Tuolumne, and I just wanna check snow conditions. Like, oh, it's great right now. I go, how about some of the domes, like, you know, like Fairview and Lembert and you know and Daff. Oh, you got to stay away from those domes. I'm like, I know. I I just like seeing the domes, but I was thinking about you know maybe you know like just checking them out. He's like, no, stay away from the domes. 
I'm like, well, how's the snow stick to them? Stay away from the domes. I'm like, all right, I'm not getting any info here, like at all. And then I had a, uh, I had a avalanche instructor out of Alaska who kind of was a guru, Bill Glued. You know Bill. I know Bill. Yeah. And um, so Bill <clears throat> walked us through Abby 1, Abby 2, and forecasting. And he was sort of our guru for years. And so I remember being up there saying, Bill, what's, uh, what's the story with snow sticking to rock? He goes, oh, I, don't, I don't No one's really has any studies on it. You know, I go, well, how would it? And he goes, well, it depends on the rock. And then so it was just there was no conclusion, you know. And, right. and I wasn't telling Bill what I was up to. And, and it just went on like this for a few years. And I remember driving home one day. All of us experienced this with our cars. We drive home during a storm. The windshield wipers are on. We wake up the next morning. It snows however many inches. And the snow doesn't brush off your windshield. It gets denser and denser and denser, and then it turns to ice, and then the ice is stuck to your windshield, and you got to scrape it off. And it was just this realization. I'm like, oh, if the dome has this much heat, a storm comes in at this temperature, and it comes in with this wind direction, and it snows this much, it'll build up and stick to the dome, turn it to ice um, at these temps, and then build on itself, and then it'll be stuck just like I could snowboard my windshield right now. I must be able to snowboard Half Dome. Right. So then I got a pit. I started digging on Donner Summit, which I referred to earlier about snowboarding down slab climbs. And I went up onto the slab and I dug down and I hit the, the rock and it was, the rock was like dry. The snow was lifted off the rock. I go, well, this isn't bonding. Whoa. It was same aspect, similar elevation as Half Dome. I'm like, well, Half Dome's not ready. So I had this, I ended up with a test pit. And then I started reading the weather and it just became a snow science project at this point. The actual snowboarding was, that was already something I could do. Most people can snowboard that steep, um, that, that ride a lot. Now it just became like this, how does snow work? How does it stick? And, and that would lead me into talking about, people talk about risk and fear. And so, when it comes to doing something that's a little higher end, what you need to do is eliminate every possible distraction that you have, okay? So if, if, you're, if you're gonna descend and your boot's a little loose, that's a distraction. Your mind is not thinking completely about the, what you're doing. You're thinking about, I should have tightened my boot. So get rid of every distraction. And those distractions would include no wind on that day. Um, they would include feeling healthy. They would include a good night's sleep. They would include it's fun. They would include all these things. And one of them they would include is I need to eliminate the possibility of the snow sliding. So I need to know everything about the snow and to be 100% confident. And then now that distraction has gone and I am 100% focused on the descent. And that's... After seven years of doing that, that's what happened one day. Seven years into this. So this yeah. was like a seven-year dream. Yeah, every, well, I don't know if it was a dream. Often it was a nightmare. Yeah, fair. Uh, oh, yeah, no, I'd visualize it and just shake, like, and wake myself up out of it. Not sleeping, but I'd sit and think about it, and then I'd fall in my thoughts. So I had to get rid of that, too. Um, 
<laughs> so the dream isn't the exact right word. But once I got it all dialed in, it became more of that feeling of like, just, not like Mount Cook, like really comfortable, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, it was great. You know, Richard and I were friends for so long. And I remember being at the, at the saddle and about to go up the cables. And he's like, it looks pretty good. I go, it kind of does, you know? And we kind of gave ourselves this like little hug, like, see ya. Like sort of a, I think, I hope I see ya. Mm-hmm. There's this this weird, awkward moment of like, we're all good, right? <laughs> like everything, we're gonna see each other, right? And I'm like, and but it was it was just cool, and I I did it, and I snowboarded back down, and and you know Richard stayed at the bottom taking pictures, and I remember like, I remember him just like, like, that was awesome. All right, what do you want to do now? I go, I want to go back up, so I hiked back up to sort of the highest uh, just above the crux and then did it again it was just so much fun wow but by that point the snow had melted a little bit and i was off a little far to the left and i made a heel turn and the heel of my board the heel edge uh, broke through the snow and hit the dome which brought my nose way far left pointing away from the snow and onto the rock and it was this you know that's again being sort of trained up and i was able to just leap out of it and get back into that turn and land and cut back across and i was like okay okay this dome's only good for so long mm-hmm. with these conditions there's only so much you can do um and and i really haven't looked back on wanting to do it again it was it was a really it was fun at the time but training for it and training your mind up was was enough because you know? for the listeners can you explain like to the left it's kind of this sheer cliff right so basically uh, a good way to explain it is that there are yosemite valley is one big valley and it was created by uh, a giant glacier that that rested in the valley and smaller glaciers entering from from sides and when those smaller glaciers entered the bigger glacier would cut them off and that's where we get all the waterfalls was from the glaciers coming in from either side would come and then get cut off by the main glacier and then everything melts, it becomes these big waterfalls. Well, the main valley is Yosemite Valley. It goes all the way up to Naya Canyon. But then the Merced River and Little Yosemite Valley comes off from a little further to the south. And then they meet um, just below Half Dome. And Half Dome is kind of this, you know, basically a ship's wedge between the two glaciers where the glaciers met and crushed all the rock and created a fin. And the fin is sheer on the north side at 2,400 feet or something and domed on the left side, the south side. And then the west and east sides uh, are domed as well. Mm -hmm. The east side's fairly steep, the west side's slightly steeper and longer. So it's just like, the glaciers just cut out a big shark fin uh, on this deal. And I was riding what is called the cable route, which was put up in the 1870s, I believe. And, uh, you know, by drilling and, and climbing up on, on bolts and stuff. And uh, just felt like the, you know, the best way to go. I haven't seen the other side form up, but I think that's the side. So in, by the time I did it, you know, then it was started to be like, well, let's figure out what the stories are. And it ended up that Eric Perlman and I forget his buddy uh, had done a route. They'd done like Snake Dyke and said, 
oh man, look, we, we walked down the cables and there's snow on it. Let's run to the car, get our skis, come back. And they did, and they were able to ski these sections, but, and then rappel off the cables back over the rocks. Right, because it wasn't Because it wasn't continuous. And it was all, it was a little splotchy is what Eric said. Uh, and I'm like, oh, that's, that's cool. And then, and then I did it. And then a kid, I forget his name. I heard, a, I saw him the day before he left. He didn't ask me anything. He didn't, he didn't really know me. I just rode the lift with him and said he was going there to go do it. And he got up to a, a higher crux, which is low angle, but the, the snow doesn't stick well to the dome. There's a big step up there, big exfoliated step. And the snow doesn't stick well, and you can bust through. And that's kind of, if you bust through there, it's game over. Um, you'll, you'll plunk, you, there's just no way you'll fall off one of the sides. Mm -hmm. And I think he, someone said he stopped there. Mm -hmm. And then two skiers went up, um, and I don't have their names on the top of my head. But on their hike in, they called me, and they got my number from somebody and just asked me questions. And, and, uh, and they went up and did it. And, uh, and then they went up and then went down the death slabs, and they had to do a bunch of rappelling or a few rappels or, or something like that, which is kind of a cool line, you know, if you can connect the slabs down there uh, that go right to Mirror Lake. And, uh, and I don't, I just don't hear about other people. I'm sure people have tried or I guess, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't really know. That's a pretty special one. Yeah. I don't think I realized ever that it was seven years of kind of realizing that it Yeah, it was pretty it prolonged, yeah. yeah. It, was, it was getting, yeah. But I think that's also something too when people go to do a, some big thing they've trained up for that they don't have to do it the first time. Yeah. Is that you just get more comfortable the more you visit it. You know? I think that's such an important lesson for people yeah. in the mountains too. Yeah. I like that. Like, I'm going to go try, but I'm not going to go do it. There's two different languages. Yeah, you're just going to take off and go check it out, you know? Yeah. You yeah. Know, like, if you go climb El Cap, it doesn't work out. It's cool. It's been there for millions of years. It'll it's probably going to still be there. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Unless it's Mount Cook and the top falls off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Unless it's Mount Cook. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just before uh, we jumped on here, too, you mentioned there was like this very distinguished moment where you realized that mm. maybe you didn't want to be out in the bigger mountains. And I'd love to kind of know. About oh, that. yeah. Yeah. I didn't really laugh. Um, so, yeah, all this. Yeah, doing all this stuff, it was super fun. Everything was was great, great fun, friends, community, and I love just uh, all the puzzles and trying to figure things out. And I had had uh, our first kid, Dylan, in 98, and then our second kid, Ryan, in 2000. And I think it would have been like 2001 or two, I went on to this expedition to do this kiteboarding thing in Greenland um, where we needed to get a little deeper in. And, and those glaciers are huge, so if there's a little bit of wind, you could, you could travel across those glaciers pretty fast. You could cover many, many miles in 20 minutes. And, uh, and then you could, you know, skin up from there. And so we were doing, we were doing that and storms came in and things started getting loaded and we started getting into these situations where, you know, the risk went up pretty high. We were fairly deep. Um, I was with Chris Figginshaw, John Greiber and Kasha Rigby, um, very small group, very deep in and Greiber forgot the map, even though he promised me he had it. <laughs> and we had to ski out, it, which we didn't know because we didn't have a map how long it was going to take because we got heli dropped in there. And, 
and then to save money we would just ski out whenever we were ready and without a map we didn't know exactly which we knew where the coast was but we didn't know which valley to take and things started getting a little hectic the snow was coming in more and i i just remember like it was sort of an aha like i have kids this is nuts we don't have a gun there's polar bears all over the place um we're just sitting meat out here uh i, I don't belong here like i am not a good member of this team anymore uh, i'm not adding to it i'm actually taking away from it and it's totally unfair to these guys that want to keep going and it was like this isn't i can't repeat this risk like I could repeat getting an avalanche train and messing up. It seems like that's more feasible than repeating going on an expedition that you know you shouldn't be on. And so it was kind of at that time I'm like, nah, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I, I just can't do this anymore. And I told those guys that during that time I'm like, I'm sorry guys, <laughs> I'm not your right partner for this, and I'm this is I just can't do this. Mm -hmm. And then funny part was on the ski out without a map we went by this big huge cool r and all of us at the same time we gotta climb and ski that there's all of a sudden you know you get the bug you know it's in you but overall it was still like no this isn't gonna work and after that i i actually uh went to the north face and just said i don't want to keep doing this you know there was something uh, another thing that combined it was as a professional athlete the focus Oops. As a professional athlete, the focus is really all on you. Um, it's a funny thing to think about, but in reality, you wake up and you think, hey, uh, you guys want to go out today and take pictures of me? And then we could look at those later. Maybe somebody should roll some film on me and then we can edit it into a cool movie. And then, uh, then we can go on tour and I can talk about me. You, know, you just get, it's you. It's, 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 it wears you down. And um, being able to do things for other people is, it sort of adds to you, you know, you, like it builds you up a little bit more and it feels better to, to do things that, that help other people. And it doesn't mean I'm building toilets in some country or getting them clean water, but teaching and getting people outside to build better product like I do with, with High Camp, you know, with the company I have now, or getting people out to, you know, maybe experience the products that they develop and build. You know, if I'm doing it with North Face, if we're organizing an event for Protect Our Winners where, you know, we gather everybody outside that we can get them into activities and get talks and workshops going, or it's, you know, whoever we're gonna work with, that we now get to get people out and show them kind of a great way to be outside and to, to experience activities and get some work done and take the work you can do in an office and just take it outside and it's just easier to keep doing that i've done that probably longer than i've was a pro snowboarder mm -hmm. and i still have energy for that and i burned out on on the other part yeah fair you know, on snowboarding and you're doing that on a large scale through high camp but then simultaneously you know, can't help but bring up Jer at his speech that he just did recently with Alpenglow Sports and how much credit he gave to you as being a mentor. And in, additionally, like Nick Russell, Elena Height, myself, so many other young up and coming or established professionals still glean so much from your knowledge and your 
passion i'm gonna use that word again <laughs> your obsession with the mountains yeah. like you've passed on this culture and this desire and 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 a lot of experience in the mountains to so many around here thank you for that well well that's a big statement um it's true yeah it's it's strange to me and i think uh i think a lot of people experience this where they they might get credit and not feel like deserving of it mm. where you're like yeah i was pretty good as a snowboarder um but the longer i stay in it the more you know it's the, i don't know the community just gets bigger so then we all sort of share knowledge and just because i've been doing it longer there's a little more to share but i'm not sure yeah there was never like this thing where well let me put it this way north face was starting a mentorship program and they sent out a form if you wanted to be part of it you know as an athlete and you know kind of share your mentorship with people and you had to take this little test and i started taking the test and i totally failed the test i couldn't fulfill any of the boxes that they asked of why i should be qualified to be a mentor everything they asked i kind of failed like i didn't have never taken any courses i've never worked for any groups i I, I didn't really have that much first aid. I did, you know, there's so many things I didn't have. I'm like, man, I'd be a terrible mentor, you know. <laughs> but can I just go out with these people? We can just, we'll just figure it out, you know. So in, in the broader sense of what a mentor is, you know, uh, yeah, I don't feel like I belong in that picture. Um, and I think the other thing to say about it is that as much as I've gone out with you guys, you know, yourself and Nick and Jared, Elena and, and uh, you know, even days with Danny Davis, you know, being on his first big backcountry trip and, and stuff like that. Um, and thinking like, okay, I'm, I've got more knowledge. I've been doing this longer in like two weeks. I'm learning way more from you guys than, than anything else. You know, I'm like, well, I think the mentorship goes both ways and it's it goes both ways relationship. pretty fast and faster than, you know, it's just that I just absorb it, you know, and and maybe don't say as much about it <laughs> i'm just like ooh, that's a good tip you and bonnie are both I incredibly humble yeah <laughs> should pay attention to those things they're doing <laughs> yeah but yeah. even if it's like i don't know we go out and and we're always writing new stuff to me like yeah. you're like sharing your knowledge of this range and and so many of the peaks like even last year, I think it was, we like, you're like, I've never ridden that cooler. We should go check it out. And oh, like, that one we did. Yeah. That, that was so awesome. So Such a great day. Yeah, but was. knowing the ins and outs and all that comes with experience of the location yeah. and like you've passed on so much of that to all of us. Yeah. Yeah. But it also, when I watch uh, any of you guys ride, I'm like, damn, it's so doable because I can watch you do it, you know? And, and I love, and you guys do it so casually. Uh, that's another part of it. I'm like, dang, I used to be gripped in here and they're super casual right now. This is cool to watch. <laughs> so I learn a lot from that. I'm like, I should calm down and not be so gripped on this line or whatever it is. Right, it's a cool right. thing. It really does go hugely both ways. Yeah, I yeah. agree. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. You're welcome. For many footsteps <laughs> I've followed. Oh. It's such a joy. And there's one other thing that I've been thinking about. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember you were doing a survey with all of the North Face athletes on how you became a professional athlete. Yeah, beyond North Face athletes, a mm -hmm. lot of athletes, and I forgot to, well, I still have it. I should be asking you these things. 
Yeah. So what about that one? I'm just curious because that's a question that I get a lot. Is like, how do you become a professional skier? How do you do this? And I'm always like, it's so different for everyone. But what were yeah. some of the things? Yeah. So I did this survey. It was a 50 question survey. Skiers, snowboarders, climbers, anybody that didn't compete. Mm-hmm. You could have competed in your early days, but your brand that you developed was not through your competition. It was uh, through just your actions of what you do day to day and uh, being in the movies, being in the mags, you know, doing everything you do. And I wanted to know through these questions and interviewing all these athletes, what do they have in common and how many are out there? You know, we think that there's a bunch of pro skiers and snowboarders and surfers and everything out there. And there's really not that many. So I would ask him even that. How many pro skiers do you think there are? I mean, how many do you think there are? How many women pro skiers in North America do you think there are? In North America? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's a question. And then you'd have to define what's a pro skier. Totally. Yeah. So I'd ask, what is a pro skier? What's your definition? And I'd say, well, how many are in North America? Once you do your definition, because you got to think about that, and then you say, you go, I mean, you're, I, I would guess, and I kind of know, there's maybe 20, maybe 15. That was going to be my answer. Yeah. yeah. So if you take that part of skiing and then male skiing, and then you go snowboarding, then you go surfing and mountain biking and all the sports, you're like, all right, so we've got 250, 300 pros of all these sports. That's a tiny group. And I interviewed about 30. I'd love to do more. So if you took the sample size and did, you know, how accurate it is, that's a pretty big sample that I'm doing. I'm doing more than 10%. So margin of error seems like it would be low. So we would have some pretty accurate info. And the point was, what do they all have in common? And that's, so when someone says, I want to be a pro, you know, you're like, well, you wouldn't believe what all the pros have in common. It's not that, it's not what you really want to hear right now, you know, um, to a kid that's, you know, whatever, 14 years old and it's working to be a pro. And you're like, yeah, almost all of them had good grades, you know, sorry, <laughs> you gotta go to school, <laughs> you know? Yes. Yeah, good part is half of them, their parents did their sport, the other half they didn't. So that doesn't matter, okay? Um, the other part is uh, no one's really been fired from a job. All right. Um, they all return text within the day. So you got to be dependable. All right. Sorry about that. <laughs> but you got to like, got to follow through a lot. You know, so there was all these things that they had in common. You know, right. there's about eight to 12 that I could, you know, do the commonalities. And um, the actual talent and being a great athlete was it's not as big of a deal as you think um, because being a pro athlete has so many other aspects that are required of you uh, by the time you're you're at the peak of your career making the most money you make you're in the highest demand at the same time because you're in the highest demand you get requested for podcasts you get requested for film shoots for appearances in shops and pretty soon you find you're taking away so much of your training time and your time on snow and or your craft that you're not able to do it as well as you used to be able to do it you know so you need to know that if you're going to be a pro, you got to do all this other stuff. Okay. And you just got to accept it. So yeah, get good at what you do, but 
you got to get good at a lot of other things too so true i've been battling with that recently of like man you're in such high demand that you i don't mean to be uh arrogant when i just said that (laughs) (laughs) but it's a hard balance to strike like even recovering from my knee injury i'm like damn i can't stay in one place for three days like it's hard to get onto any routine and dial it in and and i guess part of my i've been doing the autoresponder like all the time yeah clear as kind with communication hey i'm checking out (laughs) Right. And you think about if if you're in skiing, you know, you're you're sort of in this group, this sport that represents I think we are at I don't, I don't even know how many numbers we are in skiing, but we're in the low millions of how many skiers there are in North America, you know, 20 million whatever it is. And you think about some of these athletes that participate in say a basketball or you know, the Williams sisters in tennis or something like that where they're representing hundreds of millions that follow this sport and pay attention and that they're trying to be the best at something that, you know, hundreds, if not thousands are trying to beat them out of. So they have to stay in training yet. They're getting the same demands, TV appearances, talk shows, you know, on a, on a larger scale. And like, it's not like it's just for a skier or a surfer or a, skateboarder that gets pulled in these directions these others like how do they do it like that's a huge scale how do they stay in a routine where their training stays on top i always think they must have a team there's so much more money they've got agents they've got managers they've got publicists they've got all of these but they still have to show up to the today show or whatever totally and that's like if you think like you're trying to train you got to go to new york for two days i mean first of all shoot me before i have to go to new york (laughs) second of all you're like that's two days out yeah. of training, you know? And like, how many other interviews do they have to do? Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think that it comes to these sports that we're in, you know, uh, and you want to, how, how do you become a pro? Man, it's it's pretty broad, and I'm not going to go through all the things they had in common, but they're not as fun as you think. <laughs> yeah, you know? fair. Yeah. I think being responsive is a good one. It's it's might be the biggest one. Yeah, it really might be. And then one thing that's interesting, too, and you fall into this category is that the higher when I interviewed people, the higher I went with the people that were probably that were peaking and the uh, as the top in their craft, whatever sport they were in, the higher I got with those people, the quicker they are to give credit to other people. And um, that was interesting, too. So mm-hmm. the best of the best deflect and give credit to others. And, you know, if I was to say, man, you really are jumping those cliffs and stomping the landings, you'd be like, thanks, you know, but you know who's really good? And then you'd tell a story about somebody else. And I find that, yeah, it's an, it just it was an interesting trait to see, you know. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, and I don't know... I'm not a psychiatrist. I have no idea why they're doing that. Why yeah. do you do that? Why do you? <laughs> but it is interesting to see because you get to hear other stories. Because if I already know your story, that I knew you snopped that cliff, but I didn't know about the other person. Maybe, right. maybe that's why it's more fun. Well, I think maybe that goes back to like to dip into the psychology of it. I've heard oftentimes like like Tiger Woods or like these incredible athletes, Serena Williams, they're training like they're number two. 
they're not training like they're the best. They yeah. don't treat themselves as though they're the best. There's always something to learn. And what would that person in second place be doing to get on top? Like that's what you got to maintain that mindset. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> you got to be at the gym. You got to be at the gym. <laughs> that's what they're doing. Yeah. Pedaling, yeah. pedaling through Rome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, was in, I was in Paris. You were in Rome. Yeah. We should have met up. I know. Should have met up. Yeah. Somewhere in Geneva. Yeah. yeah. Classic. Um, one question that I ask all of my guests, um, and I'm pretty curious to hear your answer, actually. Mm. I feel like oftentimes we skip over these moments that should be celebrated. Like, they happen and we move past them and we should be really proud of ourselves and take a moment to, like, honor that. I think that's important. You're looking at me all funny. <laughs> well, I don't. Well, go go ahead. No, I'm not just curious. Like, like if you win an award, like it's super easy to boom, put the award on the shelf and walk away and go and and focus on the next thing. But if we don't take time to celebrate that, like it goes by the wayside. And I think that as a culture, it's more important to like, yeah, have a moment to be proud of yourself and and be psyched on that moment rather than just shoving it aside and moving on. Hmm. Do you feel that at all? No. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. No, I uh, I feel like number one, I feel pride is a self uh, emotion. It's all about self, and to have a sense of pride, like I'm so proud of my children. It it's me, you know. Like I'm talking about me, and like, well, no, my I think it's awesome to see my kids happy or doing something fun and I don't I want them to have the emotion and I feel like I've just transferred the emotion to how do I feel about it and I I just don't I don't think that that's where it's not something that fulfills my deal I'm way more along the lines of I get to ride a lot of powder I get to rock climb a bunch I've got a great deal that I'm in Every day feels like Father's Day and Christmas and my birthday. So I just, you know, that's why when I'm injured, I'm like, that's cool. Guys, go out. I've had a lot of great days. Like, I'm going to get more. I, I don't feel like I, I have the room to take and, and say I'm, I should cherish a moment of something that I did. Or like that was be proud me. of yourself? That was me. I would be, I get really stoked when it's more, it's, a little easier to accept like that was a great day when something great happened to somebody else because all the things we do are, are inherently selfish mm -hmm. I mean and and I do them every day so it's easier those days are better you know when maybe I've climbed something new with somebody um, uh, you know I think you climbed something with me in the last couple of years where it was a hard route for you and you're all fired up. That was a day where I'm like, this is a great day. Or um, even yesterday, Bonnie had to get up in a, way up in this aspen tree, way too high for safety and just kind of tie off and get an extended saw and cut it. And I'm just like, this is awesome. You know, it's just like, <laughs> yes. and she was like, this is not as awesome as you think it is, you know? <laughs> But I couldn't climb, you know, with being injured, I can't really climb the tree. And, and I just like, I just look at those days. I think I look at that more than if I did something, you know? Yeah. I don't know. It's hard to, because I already absorbed every day we do something fun, you know? And, right. 
And I know not everybody's able to do all this fun stuff all the time. Yeah. So it feels like it's a little much for me to take more out of it when I know that not everybody gets to do it. I like that. I don't know. Is that right? Yeah. I don't know. I guess for me, like, I feel like sometimes things happen on a day-to-day basis. It could even be the fact that I went to Paris on my virtual bike this morning and I'm proud mm-hmm. of myself for sticking it out. <laughs> I was on there for over an hour just to build back the muscle in my knee. Like, I'm proud of myself for doing that. Are there, is there anything in your life that you're like, hell yeah, I'm proud of myself for that? Huh. It's an opportunity to brag. Um, you know, one thing I, I would think that would come closest would be, especially with running a business now, and when I, I think number one, and this is what I see sometimes, if we have a big event, like I remember we did the North Face Athlete Summit, you know, you've got 150 people, you're camping for five days, you know, my crew, Chef, Billy, and the entire crew is working from about 5.30 till 10 or 11 at night, and I might see them at six at night doing dishes, all of them together, cracking up. And I'm like, I had a hand in creating this moment and everybody's making money and getting paid and they have a job. This is, this is culminating into something really cool. And that's, when I see it's like, it's like, God, I did that. And it probably comes from so many years of just going out and running powder every day where it's just like I'm not thinking about everybody else you know Mm -hmm. and it's cool to see that maybe you had an effect on somebody else and you see them laughing when they're working their asses off you're like oh yeah that's how work should be totally yeah I like those moments I love that answer yeah I liked how you debunked it too (laughs) you're like why should I have pride yeah you can ask the boys about that. So I will actually. I'm ask gonna the ask boys, the boys. Yeah. 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 If your dad ever proud, you're like, they'd be like, oh, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I have a proud dad, actually. <laughs> yeah. You probably are this for them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Good stuff, Jim. Is there anything we're missing? It seems like we've been talking a long time. I think you got it all covered there, Michelle. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure there's more, but I appreciate your time so much. Thank you very, very much. You're welcome, and I love being here. It's always good sitting around shooting the shit. Caught you when you could sit around. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you.